For our lesson of the day, I will pick up in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. What profit has the worker in that which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before Him. That which is has already been and that which is to be has already been. And God requires an account of what is past. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which gives us wisdom that we might understand the times, that we might see Your work in our own lives and in the world all around us. Oh, Father, we know even the wise cannot see all ends. We know that wisdom is better than folly, but we know even wisdom has its limits. But we pray that today You would impart to us Your wisdom that we might live faithfully before You and in glory in the life to come. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I read part of it for you this morning. Jimmy read the first part earlier in the service. Ecclesiastes 3 gives us some of the most beautiful poetry in all of literature, uh, it gives us some of the most uh, profound insight into history and into our lives in all of Scripture. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 is a poem about time. It is about the passage of time. I chose to preach on this passage, the poem and the reflections that follow. Uh, I chose to preach on it today because it seems fitting. Uh, almost all of the church's traditional lectionaries have Ecclesiastes 3 as their reading for New Year's Day. So it's a a way in which the church calendar sort of nods its cap to the secular calendar. Uh, We are at the beginning of a new year. The church year is still young. We're about six weeks in. Uh, The secular year is even younger. We're just three days in. You know, whenever one year ends and another begins, it is a time of both reflection and anticipation. We reflect on the past. You know, I can't tell you how many uh, top ten of 2015 lists I've seen in the last couple weeks reflecting back on the past year. But whenever one year dies and a new year begins, it's also a time of anticipating the future. We reflect on the past. We anticipate the future. We make plans. We consider new opportunities. We establish goals. We devise resolutions for the coming year. I think Ecclesiastes 3 helps to guide our reflections and our resolutions. It guides our reflections on the past, and it guides our resolutions about the future. Ecclesiastes 3 shows us how to live in wisdom. Uh, It shows us how to bring together our past, present, and future, how to look at our past, present, and future. But you know, time, which is the subject of this uh, poem and the reflections that follow. Time really is something of a riddle. Uh, time is full of mysteries. It's full of paradoxes. 
Uh, in Augustine's Confessions, he puzzles over the paradoxes and mysteries of time. Uh, Augustine says, I know what time is until someone asks me. <laughs> we all know what it's like to experience time. We know what we mean by time. And yet, if you had to provide a definition of time, uh, it's rather tricky. Uh, Augustine ponders how time and eternity intersect. Uh, he analyzes God's relationship to time. What was God doing before time, before he created the world? Uh, Augustine points out, uh, as we all know, that certainly God exists outside of time. He transcends time. He's not bound by time, as we are. And yet, clearly, God also exists in time. He fills time. He acts within time, within history. There is a past and a future for God, just as there is for us. Think about our own experience of time. Our own way of experiencing time. Time is what allows us to grow and mature and change. There could be no maturing without time. I suppose without time, everything would simply have to be static. The truth is, you are not the same person you were a year ago, and a year from now, you're not going to be the exact same person that you are today. Time means change. Maybe for the better, maybe for the worse. Our experience of time depends much on where we are in life and our circumstances. When we're young, time seems to go much too slow. When we get older, time seems to go way too fast and we wish we could slow it down. We structure our lives in terms of great temporal events, perhaps happy memories uh, or tragic memories that color our identity in the present. The, the past, in a sense, carries we carry the past with us into the present, happy memories or memories of tragic events, things from the past mold who we are today. They shape who we are in the present. The rhythm of the calendars we use, especially the church calendar, molds and shapes us as well. The theologian Alexander Schmemann said, tell me what you celebrate and I will tell you who you are. The things we celebrate in time, the events we commemorate say something very deep about our identity, how we understand ourselves. But you know, the future does this as well. Certain upcoming dates in the future shape the way we act in the present. Uh, if you've got an upcoming deadline at work or an upcoming final exam, it can fill you with dread. It's a future event, but it fills you with dread in the present. Other kinds of upcoming events, like say a wedding or a birthday or a graduation, can fill us with hopeful expectation. They can fill us with a kind of expectant and hopeful joy. And so future time that hasn't happened yet can somehow impact the present just as much as the past can impact the present. In some way, the past indwells the present. In some way, even the future indwells the present. And yet, if there's one thing we can say about time, it's that we ultimately have no control over. That's really obviously true, isn't it? We ultimately have no control over time. We are at time's mercy. Time flows on relentlessly. You never get to press the pause button on the clock. You can't stop time or step outside of time. Time carries it, carries us wherever it will. There's a kind of thrownness or a kind of givenness to our experience of time that it seems we can do nothing about. Now, Solomon's poem, I think, helps us to understand all of this, the, the mysteries and the puzzles and the paradoxes of time. But first, let me tell you what this poem about time is not. It is not a lesson in time management. 
Oh, how we moderns like to manage our time, or at least think we're managing our time. I think this is one of the most arrogant aspects of modern culture. We think we can manage time. Oh, sure, it's good to plan, it's good to schedule, it's good to be organized. We want to be good stewards of God's gift of time. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking we can manage time. The whole point of this chapter is that we can't manage time. God is the Lord of time, not us. God determines the times of our lives. It's not about managing time better. No, this chapter is about receiving each life event, indeed each moment, as a gift from God. This poem makes the same point, really, as James 4. Jimmy read for us James 4 also this morning. James 4 is clear. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. We can make our plans, but everything is subject to the Lord's will. The Lord doesn't care what you have in your daytime or or on your Google calendar. God is the ultimate appointment maker. You may or may not keep the appointments you make for yourself, but you will always keep the appointments God makes for you. Why? Because God is the Lord of time. So the point of this poem and the reflections that follow is not our scheduling, it's not our time management, it's God's time management. God manages time. The poem begins, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. Life has various seasons. This is just, this is not talking merely about the four seasons, uh, in terms of the weather. This is talking about the different seasons of life. And the point is, it is the Lord who sovereignly arranges those seasons. God is behind all the different qualities of time we experience, the different types of time we experience, the different kinds of events we experience in time, the good times and the bad. The Lord is behind them all. The poem consists of 14 pairs of events that are basically comprehensive, that cover the whole range of human experiences and emotions and events. And with most of these, it is very obvious they are not under our control. So verse 2, very beginning of the poem, it speaks of a time to be born and a time to die. Obviously, you don't get to choose your birthday and you won't get to choose your death day either. God sets those dates. But even in this catalog where there seems to be activities that are under human control, like say, planting, and harvesting. Actually, those events are controlled by God as well in an ultimate way. But in this poem, as this poem shows us God's sovereignty over time, over history, over the creation, as this poem shows us that God is sovereign over time, He is the Lord of time, it presents this as good news. There's no pessimism here. There's no fatalism here. Rather, the call is to entrust ourselves to the Lord who does all and all and who does all things well. And the list, again, really does include all things. It is a poetic summation of all of life. And it's showing us how God works in all events. So, again, we've already mentioned this in verse 2. It talks about birth and death, a time to be born and a time to die. Well, obviously, your birth and your death, those are really the bookends on your earthly existence. It's really a way of saying God appoints the whole of your life. Birth and death comprise the whole of your life. Your cradle and your deathbed, 
are sovereignly determined by God, but that means every event in between is determined by God as well. Every day of your life has been written out, scripted in God's eternal decree. The point here speaks of weeping and laughing in verse 4. That seems to cover the whole range of human emotion and the events that provoke those emotions. The emotions themselves and the events that provoke them are under God's control. Verse 6 speaks of a time to gain and a time to lose. Certainly there's more to this than just economic circumstances, but this covers every conceivable economic circumstance. Whether the markets are going up or down, the Lord has appointed that. That season of of growth or recession or depression is in the Lord's hands. Verse 8 speaks of a time of war and a time of peace. This covers all possible political and cultural circumstances. See, the point of this poem is that the whole sweep of human experience is under the Lord's sovereign control, under His command. The point of this poem is to demonstrate God's comprehensive sovereignty over all of life. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the good that happens to us. God is sovereign over the bad that happens to us. Some people want to say, oh, God's only responsible for the good things and the bad things come from someplace else. But you can't take God by halves in that way. This poem shows us everything is appointed and decreed by God. Everything that happens is simply the unfolding of His eternal decree. Everything is under God's God's control and is part of His eternal plan. Everything is part of His story. He is the ultimate storyteller. The days of our lives with all their ups and downs are written in His book. Psalm 139 says they were written in His book before one of them even came to be. He has written out the script of history. Now certainly when it comes to our own lives, a lot of us would like to edit that book. We'd like to edit the story. But the poem shows us here, you cannot do that. That's not possible. Verse 1 says, everything that happens under heaven is under His rule. Every moment of your life is appointed by Him. He has decreed it. He has ordained it. All that comes to pass is simply the outworking of His eternal counsel. Now, of course, in teaching this, in this poetic way, Ecclesiastes 3 is not unique. This is the theology of the Bible. In passage after passage, we find Scripture affirming God's rule over creation and over history. History is but the unfolding of His eternal plan. History truly is His story. So Proverbs 16.9 says, A man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Psalm 115 says, Our Lord is in the heavens. He does as He pleases. In Psalm 31, the psalmist says, My times are in your hands, O Lord. In Isaiah 45, the Lord speaks. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. In Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul says, God works all things after the counsel of His will. In Romans 8, Paul says that God works together all things for the good of those who loved Him and have been called according to His purpose. In Psalm 33, the psalmist says, the plans of the Lord stand firm. And on and on and on we could go. Scripture again and again confesses God's absolute sovereignty over His creation. And again, this is presented in Scripture not as something threatening or scary, but as our greatest possible comfort. There is nothing better than to know that God is sovereign over your life story. That God is sovereign over the history of the cosmos. There's nothing better to know. There's nothing more comforting to know. 
Because this means that everything has its place. It means everything that comes into your life is there for a purpose. Certainly the good things are, but the bad things serve a purpose as well. Let me give you an illustration of this to help you understand how God can use even the bad for our good. Maybe you know uh, the story that's told in the book The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Some of you I'm sure are familiar with this story. It's about Corey Ten Boom and her sister Betsy. They were Dutch Reformed Christians. And uh, during World War II, they were captured by the Nazis. They were taken prisoner. Uh, they were taken to a concentration camp. And of course, it was a terrible, terrible place to be. Uh, Corey became very discouraged. And Betsy tried to uh, brighten her spirits, reminding her that they had to trust God and continue to thank Him for everything. Now, life in the concentration camp was brutal. They were in the middle of a war. They were separated from family. They had to watch other prisoners suffer and even die. But day in and day out, what bothered Corey the most were the lice that bit her continually on her head. She couldn't even get a good night's sleep. Uh, the lice made her absolutely miserable. Well, one night as Corey and Betsy were praying, uh, they were thanking God for everything in their prayers, and Betsy interrupted Corey at the end of her prayer and said, don't forget the bed bugs." Corey, thank God for the bed bugs as well. Thank God for the lice. Of course, Corey thought her sister was crazy. How can you thank God for lice? But she did. She thanked God for the bed bugs by faith. Well, Corey and Betsy, when they had uh, been in this concentration camp for not very long, they started a Bible study in their barracks. And of course, this was an unauthorized and illegal Bible study. Uh, and had they gotten caught by the guards, had the guards discovered it, they would have been in big trouble. It would have made their suffering even worse. But oddly, the guards never came into their barracks to break up the Bible study or to order them to stop studying the Bible together. Uh, sometime later, Corey learned the reason the guards didn't come back into the barracks to break up the Bible study is because they were afraid of catching lice. Little did she know at the time, but it turned out God was using those lice as a kind of shield around Corey and Betsy to protect them. So have you ever wondered, why did God create lice? How do lice fit into God's plan? Now you know. Even times of lice, lice infestation can be turned for our ultimate good. See, even times of lice infestation are part of God's eternal plan for the good of His people. Those times are in God's hand as well. If God is sovereign over every detail of your life, what does it mean? It means you can live fearlessly. You have nothing to fear because God is in control of everything. Every chess piece on the board is moved and directed by God. It means nothing can harm you unless God allows it for some good purpose. The missionary Henry Martin said, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. I am immortal until I have done every single thing God wants me to do on this earth. Martin Luther said, you cannot live any longer than the Lord has appointed, but neither can you die any sooner. And the Presbyterian Stonewall Jackson said, My religion has taught me to feel as safe on the battlefield as in death. See, when God assigns you 
seasons of difficulty, seasons of weeping, you can know, you can rest assured that not a single tear is wasted. God will bring good out of them. If God isn't sovereign over tragedy, then we have no guarantee God can work those painful events together for our good. We have no guarantee He's going to use the lice in our lives for good if God's not sovereign. That the times of life, lice infestation or whatever other disaster God brings into your life, we have no hope and no security that those events will be turned to our good unless God is sovereign. Unless God is sovereign over absolutely everything, then one maverick molecule in the universe could ruin it all. And that's why Scripture shows us again and again that God is sovereign. And because He is sovereign, we know the story He's telling will turn the tragic in our lives into the beautiful. Because God is sovereign, we know happy endings aren't just for failure, fairy tales. We know the tapestry God is weaving out of our lives certainly, yes, has dark patches. But we know that if we could just stand back far enough to take it all in, we would see its beauty. I don't think we ever can stand far back enough to take it all in. So we have to take this on faith. But the point is, God makes everything in our lives work for our good. He appoints the times and seasons of our lives, and therein lies our security. God makes everything happen at just the right time and in just the right way. Each of our lives is a divine masterpiece. We are all living inside of a great story, an epic tale of adventure and beauty. And yes, your life is going to have its ups and its downs. Good times and bad times as described in this form. But it's all for your good because it's all appointed by God. And in fact, I think this is really what Solomon goes on to show us in his reflections that follow. You've got the poem in the first eight verses, but then in verses 9-15, through 15, Solomon reflects on this truth. The truth presented in the poem. In these verses, the wise teacher Solomon calls on us to live by faith. To receive life as a gift. To wait patiently for God to work all things out. This is what it means to live in light of God's sovereignty. To live under the sovereign rule of God and to live in light of His sovereign rule. In verse 9, Solomon says, there is no profit in all our labors. Now, Solomon's not saying don't work as if work had no value at all. But what he's saying here, and this is really a theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing that we can do that gives ultimate profit or ultimate advantage. Solomon is saying, recognize there's nothing you can do to alter God's sovereign plan. There's nothing you can do that will give you leverage over life or leverage over God. Instead, as he goes on to say in verse 10, we should keep ourselves busy with the work God has assigned to us. God in His sovereignty assigns each of us a vocation. God has given you business to do. He's given you tasks. God has given you a, a, a job description. Whatever chapter of life you're in, whatever chapter in your story you're in, God has given you work to do. And so go do it. Go do it with all your might and leave the rest to God. You take care of your business. God will take care of His. Verse 11 explains why. Why we ought to live this way. And here's the security. Here's the comfort. God makes everything beautiful in its time. 
In other words, Solomon is saying the wise way to live, what it means to, to live by faith, to walk by faith, is to leave it all to God. Leave it to God to work everything out. Leave it to God to establish the works of your hand. To make your work endure for all eternity. Leave it to God to glorify you. You don't have to glorify yourself. God will do that. God will beautify you in due time. Leave it to God to bring good out of evil and to bring life out of death. That's God's work and God promises to do it. And so the best way to live is to trust Him and to trust His plan and to trust that His plan will integrate everything into it in a perfect way. God's plan will put everything in its perfect place. He will make everything beautiful in time. You know, Solomon has already said in this book that all the labors of men are vapor or mist. He says vapor, vapor, all is vapor. Mist, mist, all is mist. You know, your work is here today and gone tomorrow. Like a mist, like a vapor, it's fleeting. Nothing you do has any staying power or lasting power on its own. In fact, that's not just true of your work. That's true of your life. Your life is vapor. Your life is a mist. You are here today and gone tomorrow. And you can't control your life any more than you can shepherd the wind. Solomon has been making that point again and again in this book. But Solomon also shows us God's work is not vaporous. God's work is solid. It is lasting. It is beautiful. Verse 14 says, Whatever God does shall stand forever. God's work endures. And God can make your work endure too. He can somehow weave the work of your life into His eternal new creation. And not only that, but you can't shepherd the wind, but God can certainly shepherd the wind because ultimately the wind is His own breath, the Holy Spirit who blows where He will. God's work is not vapor. And God can shepherd the wind. And so God can make everything beautiful in its time. Again, this is the guarantee of the happy ending. This means every plot line in your life is going to be resolved in the end. Every loose thread is going to be tied up. Your life may seem disordered. It may seem messy and chaotic. Maybe painful, raw, brutal. May even seem ugly. But you need to know, Solomon is showing you here, God does everything in a fitting way. That doesn't minimize your pain or your suffering. It doesn't somehow mean evil really is good. No, evil really is evil. But it does mean that you have this hope that somehow God will make the beauty shine through in the end. And things will be even more glorious and more beautiful in the end for having been so painful and ugly in the meantime. Verse 15 says God will call the past to account. He will make up for what has been lost in the past. He will judge the past and He will show how it all fits together into His perfect plan. In His plan, nothing is really lost. That's what it means for God to make all things beautiful in their time. But Solomon goes on in verse 11. He says, God has put eternity into the hearts of men. God has put eternity in our hearts. What does this mean? It means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that God has given man a yearning. 
God has given man a longing that nothing in this world can satisfy. Because we are made in the image of God, we have a yearning for God Himself. Because we are made in the image of an eternal God, we have a kind of longing for eternity with that God. God has made us with a thirst that only He can satisfy. God has made us thirsty for Himself. We have an empty ache inside of us that only God can fill. Augustine captured this well when he said, O Lord, You have made us for Yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in You. Because eternity is in our hearts, we can only be satisfied with an eternal God. C.S. Lewis also captures this very well. Listen to Lewis. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So your desires, your longings for the things of this world ultimately point you to something that isn't from this world. Your deepest desire, a desire to know God. Lewis says, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all the beauty came from. He describes this longing as the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. See, what is this getting at? How do we live? As people who are caught between time and eternity, we live by faith. And living by faith means we trust we will visit that country from which we've only heard news. We will dance to that tune we've only heard faintly echoed in this life. We will find that flower whose scent we only barely know in this world. To live by faith means we trust that the longing and the yearning will be satiated in the end. Because eternity is in our hearts. We can only be satisfied with the eternal God. But God's going to give Himself to us. Because we have eternity in our hearts, we can't help but ask questions. We have questions because we have eternity in our hearts. We want to ask, why? Why this? Why that? But in the end, God doesn't give us answers he gives us himself god doesn't give us answers he gives us something better than an answer he gives us himself trusting god means trusting that he will satisfy you in the end he will make everything beautiful in the end and that yearning and that longing that you have will be satisfied we must trust god to satisfy us that's part of what we have to do that's part of what solomon gets at here. But there's another part here as well. And this goes back to what Solomon said about keeping busy, doing the work God has assigned you to do. But he goes on and he develops this. Solomon makes it clear. We must make the most of the time that has been given to us. We must make the most of it. We must seize every moment. Your lifetime is a tiny little fragment of eternity given to you as a priceless treasure. A priceless commodity for you to steward and use to God's glory. And even if your time seems to be more difficult than joyous, you're called to make the most of it and you're called to know that God is at work 
and will use it all for your ultimate good. Oh, we might wish things were different in our lives, but we need to know God has a good purpose. And our job is to be faithful in whatever our circumstances are. I know it's kind of cliche, and I know I go to this well you know, too often, but I just can't help myself. There is that great scene in Lord of the Rings where Frodo and Gandalf are talking about the Ring of Power. It's actually a really good scene in the movie, uh, in the books too. Uh, in the movie, you see them, they're down in the mines of Moria, and uh, so they, they, they've been... Uh, you know, they've, they've headed out to destroy the ring, and of course, Frodo is greatly discouraged. And he says to Gandalf, I wish that this hadn't happened in my time. So I think uh, Tolkien understood Ecclesiastes well. Frodo says, I wish this hadn't happened in my time. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see such time. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the ring of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging You might look at your life. You might look at the world around you and say, I wish this hadn't happened in my time. I wish my time was different and not so difficult. But what Solomon shows us here is however hard your times and seasons are, your calling is to trust God and to do with your time the best you can and to know God is at work. The forces that are pressuring you and making your life so difficult are not the only forces and powers at work. There is a greater power which will overcome all of those forces and powers and turn it all out for your good. That's our hope. God will turn it all out for the best. When you see all of this as Solomon does, then you can know what Solomon knows. And this is what he gives us in verses 12 and 13. He says, in light of all of this truth about God's sovereign plan, there is nothing better than for a man to rejoice and to do good and to eat and drink and enjoy all the good of his labors. For Solomon says, this is the gift of God. This is truly the best and most joyous way to live. This is good news. This is liberating. God wants you happy. God wants you to enjoy His gifts. God wants you to eat and drink and be merry, not because you're going to die tomorrow, but because you're going to feast with Christ in eternity. And so He prepares a table for you even in the midst of your enemies. God wants you happy. God wants you filled with joy. Yes, our lives have times of weeping and pain. Yes, our lives have times of fasting. But the accent, the emphasis is on our joy and our feasting. There is nothing better in God's sight than for a man to enjoy the fruit of his labor as the gift of God. And the key really there is is seeing it all as the gift of God. What allows you to enjoy the gifts of God? It's gratitude. Gratitude is, is the corkscrew that opens the bottle of the best wine. See, Non-Christians get all kinds of bottles of wine from God. God gives them all kinds of gifts. But because they don't have gratitude, they can't really open up those gifts and enjoy them. 
What allows you to enjoy God's gifts is gratitude. Gratitude is the corkscrew that lets the wine flow so you can really enjoy all that God is bestowing upon you. And Solomon tells us here, there is nothing better than for a man to enjoy the fruit of his labor as the gift of God. Enjoy the fruit of your labor with gratitude towards God in your heart. Thanking God for all that you have. Content with all that God has provided because you know this is His perfect will for you. This is a call to joy. Not just to to live by faith, but a call to joy. To an unshakable joy. And the basis of this joy is divine sovereignty. It's knowing that God appoints all the times and seasons of your life That God has scheduled your life. All of your time is scheduled and assigned by God and it's for your good. God's sovereignty is the unshakable foundation on which we can build a life of joy. Trusting God makes joy possible. Indeed, trusting God breeds joy and multiplies joy in our lives. Now you might wonder, you know, Solomon says all these things here. But he doesn't really seem to prove any of these things here. These are all articles of faith. Solomon just wants us to believe him. He doesn't give us any real evidence or solid proof that all these things are going to happen. How do we know that God's going to take the ugliness of our lives and make it beautiful in time? How do we know that our vaporous works are going to be established forever? How do we know that our feasting right now is really going to be a foretaste of a greater feast to come? Well, it's true. Solomon calls us to to believe these things, to take these things on faith. But now we have a kind of proof, a kind of evidence that Solomon didn't. The ultimate proof of God's perfect timing, the ultimate proof that God will make all things beautiful in their time is found in the life of God incarnate. The ultimate proof of all of this is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is God, He is sovereign. And as sovereign, He is sovereign over time. And the hymn we sometimes sing, Crown Him with Many Crowns, we celebrate this. And that hymn, Jesus is called the Lord of years and the potentate of time. Time is on His side. Time is in His hands. Time is under His rule. He's the King. He's the Lord. He's the ultimate proof that all this is true. See what's happened in Jesus in the incarnation of the Son of God? The storyteller has written himself into the script and has become the star of the show. He's not just the author of the story, now he's the leading character. And when he steps on stage, what does he do? He acts as the hero, slaying the dragon and rescuing the damsel in distress so he can take her home to live with him in his palace for all eternity. That's what Jesus does for us. Jesus always knew what time it was. And He always acted at just the right time. There was a time for Jesus to be born. Galatians 4 says He was born of a woman in the fullness of time. There was a time for Him to die. Romans 5, 6 says, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And of course, He rose again at just the right time as well. Right on schedule on the third day. Which 1 Corinthians 15 tells us was according to the Scriptures. The perfect time for Him to rise. He he died at the right time. He rose again at the right time. Jesus was never late. He was never early. He was always right on time. Jesus 
knows when to plant and when to harvest. He's planting the seed of the Gospel even right now and He will come to gather its fruits at just the right time at the last day, at the conclusion of history. Jesus knows when to heal and when to kill. He gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf in His earthly ministry. But in 70 A.D., He brought a fierce judgment on those in Israel who rejected His Gospel and persecuted His church. Some He healed, some He killed. Jesus knew when to weep. Such as when His good friend Lazarus died. He wept, He grieved. But He also knew when to rejoice. Such as when He raised Lazarus from the dead. And when He was eating and drinking with sinners at the table. Jesus knew when to embrace and when to not embrace. He knew when to embrace the lost sheep of Israel. And He knew when not to embrace the hypocritical Pharisees. He knew when to speak and when to be silent. We see Him speaking all over the Gospels, telling stories, issuing commands, explaining why He has come. But we also see Him falling silent at just the right moment. When He is on trial before Pilate, the trial for His life, He's being led like a lamb to the slaughter. And the Apostle Peter tells us like a lamb before its shears is silent. So He opened not His mouth. Jesus knew the right time for everything in His life. And He knows the right time for everything in your life as well. He is the embodiment of God's wisdom. He is love in flesh. And so entrust yourself to Him in all the seasons of your life. Know that He is trustworthy. Let Him make everything beautiful in His perfect timing. Life is beyond your control. So many of our problems stem from trying to control and manage our lives on our own. Life is beyond your control. But don't let what you can't control destroy what you can enjoy. Let God be in control and receive His gifts with gratitude. The key to having the time of your life is knowing the times of your life are in Christ's hands. It's knowing that Christ can turn even the ugliest parts of your life into something beautiful. If God could take the cross, the ugliest event of all, and make it beautiful, He can take the crosses in your life and make them beautiful as well. See, the good news here is that you don't have to bear the burden of being your own God. You don't have to create your own reality. You don't have to suffer that unbearable burden of controlling your life or giving meaning and significance to your life. To take on that burden would be like telling a five-year-old he's got to run his whole household and so he's got to pay all the bills and he's got to make all the meals and do all the laundry and get everybody where they need to go. A five-year-old just can't handle that. The responsibilities and the burdens would crush him. How much more when you try to be God and seize control of your life, how much more is that a crushing burden? No, let God be God and you be you. It's not a sin to be a creature. It's not a sin to be finite. You don't have to have everything figured out. You don't have to have all the answers. You can live without answers. You can live without even knowing what the right questions are. You simply have to trust in Him. Trust the One who makes all things beautiful in time. Again, if God could take the cross of Jesus, the ugliest event in the history of the world, and make it beautiful, He can certainly beautify all the crosses in your life as well. Let's pray together. 
Oh Lord, we ask that You would help us and that You would give us wisdom and faith and joy. That You would help us to reconsider our stance towards life. That we might fully, more fully orient our lives towards You. That we might rest in You. That we might rest in Your promises. That we might rest in Your sovereign rule over all things. We ask that You would help us to give up trying to control and manipulate persons and events around us. But to trust that You know best. Oh Lord, You know we may often make an ugly mess of things in our lives. But we are confident and joyous anyway because we know You can make everything beautiful in its own time. Help us, Lord, to number our days aright. To know every second spent sinning is wasted time. And to know that every second spent serving You and rejoicing in Your gifts will stand for all eternity because You will make it stand. Oh Lord, this is our prayer that You would help us to live in this way and to know these things. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.